Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio. Ah, cats. Jump back and dust off your Cadillac. You're listening to Respect for Life with your host, Brother Leroy, on the Keys Network. Blog Talk Radio, baby. Act like you already knew. Ow! for designing online classes and providing face-to-face and virtual technology training or help with computer programs, web design, and graphic arts. We also provide biography writing services for websites. For more information, give us a call at 631-399-0149. That's 631-399-0149. The Fluffs present the alphabet, now found in paperback, sporting a five-star rating. Fashions and gifts that bring out the best in you. Moon 107 is an online retail store featuring women's and men's clothing and a gift shop. The woman's shop features stylish tunics, suits, and accessories and offers the well-dressed woman an outlet to find the perfect gift for self or for someone else. The men's shop offers classy French cut shirts for the well-dressed man. The gift shop offers organic skin, hair,
is Blog Talk Radio. Do we have Brother Akbar on the line? Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Can you hear me? Okay, loud and clear. Ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, this is the Keys 107 Network. Sorry for the slight delay. I am Brother Leroy, your host for this evening, and we are going to 9 o'clock. Our first segment is Brother Akbar Muhammad. He is the international representative of the Nation of Islam, and Mr. Farrakhan's representative abroad in Africa and beyond. And um, we have him for a quick few minutes to share some information. The other week on the Ramadan prayer line, Brother Akbar indicated the reaction to the Zimmerman acquittal was way, way out there in in Africa. This kind of news, of course, is not floated here in the U.S. and definitely not in the black community. So before he begins, let me let me greet you, Brother Akbar, in our nation's greetings of peace and paradise. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum salam. And Ramadan Mubarak. Ramadan Kareem. Um, please share with us your experience in Ghana and uh, in Morocco as it relates to the Zimmerman acquittal. Well, um, first of all, uh, Brother Leroy, thank you very much for inviting me on the show to have this discussion. And um, I was in Ghana in West Africa when the news of the acquittal was announced and uh, the reaction. Uh, to me was amazing. I didn't know that they were so up on it, but the BBC, the local news uh, in Ghana, their TV stations, Voice of America, quite naturally Voice of America would have it, but it ran continuously. And the perception in the picture that's painted is that uh, America is still suffering from um, this problem with race, and it became so obvious in this case where uh, six white women um, freed this white man who killed a young black man in cold-blooded cold murder and, and hid behind Stand Your Ground. But that was the tragedy. And they played it in Africa continuously, which hurts America. And I believe that um, we in America may not understand what happens in the outside world between China, Russia, uh, India, big populations, Eastern Europe, across Europe, and then Africa, the Middle East. Well, you know, we don't see that picture because inside of America, what they are saying and how they picture us and how they critique America is not heard inside of America. Hmm. Uh, a prime example is Voice of America which is broadcast actually right from Washington, D.C., is never heard inside of America. The content of Voice of America is not heard inside of America. And CNN has an international news that is not heard unless you have CNN FM, if they still call it that. Uh, if you have that, you can see how uh, CNN is broadcasting outside of America. So there is a big difference. And I do believe that one of the reasons that the President of the United States stepped in, because he's uh, aware of what the outside world is saying and viewing about America, 
and it's no doubt that he had to step in and make a statement about this and also to calm you know that we're unpredictable uh one time we can be talking about a peace march and so forth the next minute we can be burning down a city and beating up white people who come through the uh the hood or our neighborhood so that um position that it puts them in that they are unpredictable we don't know what they may do so it made them uh step into it uh, different government officials made their statements and they pleaded for peaceful protest though we had some problems in some cities so that is the way uh mm-hmm. Ghana now in Algeria uh, excuse me and in Morocco I could not weigh because my Arabic is limited and my French is about the same. And mm-hmm. uh, the language of Morocco is French and uh, Arabic. So some of the news stories, unless I was looking at some of the stations that you know target the English-speaking audience. But uh, that's what I got from the other side. And I think it's important uh, to know and to understand that sometimes it's the shaming of America that pushes the leadership of America to do what is the right thing or either to say the right words as to not be such big hypocrites preaching democracy and freedom and the open press to the outside world, meanwhile oppressing and mistreating the descendants of slaves inside of America. So when America is shamed like that, then mm-hmm. she seems to try to take another course. And and uh, your statement at that time on on the Ramadan prayer line, even though it, you know was very short and to the point as this is, the my mind went back to the civil rights period when there were gains uh, that black people uh, enjoyed coming out of the uh, various assassination of civil rights leaders, including uh, Reverend Martin Luther King, certain concessions were done. But later, there are writings that have appeared that said it was within the context of America in competition with, quote, Red China and Soviet Russia for the hearts and minds of the people in the third world that these concessions were readily given at that time. Um, and your your point about the shaming of America points right back to that kind of situation and also the president uh, who is the face of America's uh, Kumbaya movement uh, to the outside world and to some of us inside, that he stepped up and, and said some things that he had not said before. Now, moving moving over to the situation in Libya, where very little information has gotten out or is getting out regarding Libya, we had the experience of interviewing a husband and wife who were in Libya, uh, Caucasians who were in Libya before the overthrow of Gaddafi, during the overthrow and, and the aftermath. And they spoke to us about the devastation and the lawlessness that uh, ensued 
upon the NATO bombing, uh, just the more bombing they said than in World War Two or World War One and World War Two combined. What have you been hearing in among the African nations as relates to what happened to Libya and the sentiment of the people? <clears throat> Brother Leroy, that's a very good question. And, uh, I mean, it's something that uh, I'm always anxious to weigh in on, being that uh, uh, the Nation of Islam's years of relationship with Libya and me being the primary ambassador for the Nation of Islam to Libya. Um, first, in the, this week, the escape of 1,200, first the news reported 1,000 uh, imprisoned uh, Libyans in Benghazi. And what the news omitted was the fact of how many Qaddafi loyalists were in that prison. They just skipped over that. Uh, Libya is a mess. And the reason that they try to keep it out the American press, because the mess was created by us under the guise that uh, they had a 30-year dictator and they were going to bring democracy. The country is in shambles. There is no security. Um, there's militant groups that got their own sections of the country that they protect. Um, the uh, Islamic groups in the east of the country are at battle with those in Tripoli, uh, for control. You have the secular community and you have those who are loyalists to uh, Gaddafi. So the country is in shambles and it's no doubt about it. But yet and still they found a, a way to still pump some oil and to because of her tremendous reserves and it's sold to the Western world basically. But the people are suffering. The people under Gaddafi, I don't care how they criticize him, they had security. Their children went to school. Uh, there was a level of comfort that you could go out of your house at night. And uh, Libya is a country that Ramadan is a very serious time for Libyans. I mean, it's it's a part of their faith, but also it's deep into the culture that everybody who is able to fast during Ramadan. This Ramadan is chaos in Libya. And uh, the killing of the ambassador in Benghazi, which started the ball to roll, America was just so embarrassed because these are the same people that they were supplying weapons and guns and undermining, using them to undermine Muammar Gaddafi and lead the revolt against him and then brutally kill him. The other thing is the treatment of the black Libyans and yes. the black people in Libya. I just heard right before I left Africa about a group uh, that the Libyans were deporting Africans out of the country and where Gaddafi had open borders for Africans, you know, you could flow into the country. And uh, he believed that the wealth of Libya, with its small population, could be shared with others in Africa. So Libya is in shambles. The so-called democracy that they hoped for is not there. Uh, people are still being assassinated. People are being tortured. They're trying to find out where the billions of dollars of Gaddafi's gold and other foreign currency reserve that they didn't get their hands on all of it, where it's located. And this is probably one of the reasons that his son, Safe, is still alive. But they killed his other sons. Uh, out of the six sons, uh, three are dead, and there's three still alive. But it is a tragedy um, 
the scale of the tragedy is unbelievable. The tremendous infrastructure that the oil wealth built up in Libya, roads and schools, and I mean an infrastructure that you would not believe in a country like Libya, all of that destroyed with the NATO bombs. Uh, and now the companies that want to step in and rebuild the Western country, co countries who want a piece of that, uh, now are hard-pressed to get it because of the chaos that exists in that country. There's no security. And the internal uh, fighting among the Libyan groups, the armed groups. So that's what you have uh, in Libya right now. And then to add insult to injury, the OAU was celebrating its 50th anniversary, now the African Union, and added there were governments and leaders of certain African states that wanted to give Muammar Gaddafi credit for where they are now with the African Union, and there were those that didn't want his name mentioned. Mm. How mm. In, in gratitude. Uh, Muslims, we, we say that Allah hates ingratitude, that whatever befalls you of good, you should be grateful and respect those who did it. But imagine his name who financed most of the country that didn't have finance to pay their dues, didn't have money to even come to some of the conferences. Uh, and it would be Brother Gaddafi who was the guy that backed them up. He was the man that they could go to and get what resources they needed in order to attend the meetings and to move things forward. So, yes, Libya is in shambles, and it is a real tragedy. One, one of the... Uh, points that the husband and wife team made with us regarding the destruction of Libya is the destruction or partial destruction of the man-made river and the other water uh, supplies that that Gaddafi was engineering for the greening of the the arid areas of Libya. Can you talk uh, about that? What you saw before the NATO invasion? Yeah, at the time, um, it was, and it still may be, one of the greatest engineering feats in the world. It was called the Great Man-Made River. Uh, Minister Farrakhan, myself, and a delegation that was with them, when they opened the Great Man-Made River in Tripoli, we were present. Brother Gaddafi invited Minister Farrakhan to put his hand on the uh, the lever that uh, opened it up, the, uh, the water flows from south of Benghazi in the desert, and they discovered a tremendous amount of water under the desert floor. And as you said, he was going to use it, as he called it, the greening of the desert, and uh, to use that tremendous water to supply Libya with water and even other countries. And uh, it's not even mentioned. It's not mentioned that it was Muammar Gaddafi that pushed that idea, financed it, brought in the engineers, and brought that water out. So the man-made river, where it stands right now, I have not read or followed it up with uh, some of my Libyan friends who are out of Libya right now. But um, it is a, a great man-made feat, and history will show that this is one of the things that uh, Muammar Gaddafi brought to this North African country. The the point that the husband and wife team make is that 
the man-made river is not a military pro uh, target, yet it was liberally bombed by the NATO planes. Not that you can verify that, but I'm just sharing, sharing uh, what, with you what they said. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know that. You know, I have not read okay. that they bombed it. But if they did, it's like trying to destroy the work that he did for the Libyan people so that history will record no credit for him. And uh, if the people are being supplied with water for agricultural needs and drinking water and water that a society needs of nearly 6 million people now, and he would get the credit for making that available through this great engineering feat, they don't want that. And I could see them, uh, their motive for bombing it. Uh, I could see that, that happening. Uh, given given the history of those people in terms of destroying things that are do not have their uh, hand handwork on it, the uh, I want to shift to your personal uh, life as it relates to acceptance of Islam and how that either gave rise to your focus on history what gave life to your interest in history. Can you share that with us? Well, I, I can try to make it uh, simple. Um, three men in my life that inspired me. Um, first, I heard the teachings of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. And um, I was 18 years old. Uh, I went to the mosque uh, uh, in February on February 13, 1960, I stood up, as a lot of young men were doing at that time, because it was in the height of the Civil Rights Movement. In 1960, 17 African nations became free, sending ambassadors to the U.N. right in New York, Malcolm interacting with them, talking about the movement in Africa, and it should be an inspiration for a movement in America not knowing that we were the inspiration for the movement in Africa. And uh, I joined the Nation of Islam. The Honorable Elijah Muhammad um, was the inspiration in my life and what he taught uh, me and introduced me to the religion of Islam and made me to see uh, the former slave master uh, and what he had done to destroy us as a people. And we still suffer from that in 2013. And uh, Malcolm X, being my minister in New York, gave me an opportunity to be in the ministry class. And he, I had a, uh, a love of history when I was in elementary school in New York. I mean, I just gravitated towards it. And I think that Malcolm kind of made me focus on it by what he taught and what he brought to the mosque in terms of information. And then the third person would be Minister Louis Farrakhan deeply spiritual man, a man who, in my years, I think it's 47 years we've been together, uh, and he's a man that relies on God, tremendous spiritual depth, depth, and his level of faith and his dedication to the redemption of our people and using the God-gifted talent that he has to communicate and make things clear. And... Um, and that's been my journey in Islam. And now 
at uh, at my age, I can look back. I just turned 71 years old uh, this year, and uh, it's been a tremendous journey. Uh, from 1960 to 2013, my life has revolved around the nation of Islam, and it's been a life to try to serve people and with my own personal struggles in life, you know, children and grandchildren and your wife and your family. So it's been a it's been a struggle, but what keeps me going is that I believe in what the Honorable Elijah Muhammad said, that our way of life, which is a good way of life, will dominate. The enemies of Islam, some people just see they hate Islam. No, this is a capitalist society. The Western world is built on capital, and they know that there's aspects of Islam that will take that capital away. And you can start with alcohol, the alcohol industry that is a multi-billion dollar industry, if not trillions of dollars, that the alcohol industry would die up if Islam is to dominate society. Then you have tobacco, you have uh, uh, the pork industry, you have the sex trade and the sex industry that they just did a piece on the uh, billions of dollars that's spent on that. Then you have the gambling casinos called gaming. All of that, if Islam dominates the idea in the minds of the masses of people, even though they may not be Muslims, but if the idea dominates, then it will dry up a lot of the capital in the Western world. Uh, the culture of Islam, the family structure, uh, and what the West relies on to keep the people bathed in stupidity, occupy their mind with a lot of empty ideas, Islam will change all of that. So their war is not against us personally because of our faith. This is the way I see it. Their war is a war of economics. It's a clash of civilizations and a clash of ideas. And uh, Huntington, in his book, The Clash of Civilization, wrote it right, that this is a clash between the Eastern and the Western world, and it just so happens, uh, Brother Leroy, that Islam uh, came into America, even though it came with the slaves who were Muslims. The uh, slave masters sought to suppress it and wipe it out completely, and which they practically did. Only small remnants of those who came as Muslims was left, but it was reintroduced by the teacher of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad and uh, Master Farad Muhammad, and then it began to grow, and young men and women gravitated towards it because it gave them a hope of a new lifestyle, things that they longed for, you know, uh, sincerity, uh, cleanliness, purity, uh, you know, the love of each other. And so we became a part of that. I'm using it loosely now because we don't call the nation a, uh, a movement. We call it a nation. But it, it strengthened that movement. And even those who never intended or wanted to be a Muslim never became a Muslim were inspired by the direction of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad and the young cadre that took to the streets to try to save our people from the hell that they were in. So that's been my life 
personally, and uh, and I still find myself uh, doing it. I was in Ghana last Friday, the last Juma I spent there, and they asked me to speak, and the mosque was literally packed with young people. I was so impressed. And during Ramadan, everybody tries to make it a point to be at the mosque for prayers and Juma prayer, and they asked me to talk. And I talked to the young people and told them that they were the hope of a better future. Mm. And don't be subsumed by the Western world and Western ideas that take you out of your faith. Mm. So that's it. Uh, I know it's a scenic route around it, but that's what my life has been about. And I thank uh, God for my ten children. I lost one. And for my 14 beautiful grandchildren. All praise due to Allah. I want to touch on the the fact that you point out that Islam had been here in America. Uh, many of our ancestors were brought over on this, the uh, so-called slave ships and had Islam. And uh, yet, Master Fraud Muhammad comes and he comes with a teaching that has a particular prescription, my word, for the black man and woman in America. What what are some of those ingredients that you can point to that have made the nation of Islam effective in transforming black people from Negroes into conscious black men and women pursuing Islam. Right. I mean, it's it's a, it's a great uh, terminology that you use, a prescription. And I think that, uh, Brother Leroy, there was a man named Erdman Binyard uh, who uh, did his dissertation at the University of Chicago in the early 30s on what he called a voodoo code. He mm-hmm. was talking about the nation of Islam. And one of the lines in his writing is that the people who accepted uh, this teacher, Farad Muhammad, uh, transformed their lives completely. Their whole lifestyle changed. And he was trying to describe what his research had made him to see. What is it that changed them completely? Because their eyes were open to, you know, to look at that history of how they got into America and then how the racist society and a society that was Christians wanted to ease their own uh, souls by making it so that God had cursed these people black, that being black was a plague from God, and that uh, they had every right to try to uh, civilize and use these people who God had cursed with black skin to make us hate ourselves. So his teaching reversed all of that. His teaching said, no, you're the original man. You're the first man in the light of the sun. All other people came from you. That's not racism. It happens to be a fact. And he put that idea at the core of our brain and our thinking. And with that idea, we begin to change our lives. Because if we are the original people and we are uh, the sons and daughters of God and that we have those God qualities, then what do we look like? shooting dope in our veins or uh, drowning our uh, brains in alcohol, pickling our brains in alcohol 
what do we look like abusing our children and our wives and our people and killing each other? So that is the impact, how it changed our life. And then the the idea of what the Honorable Elijah Muhammad promoted from his teacher, it was the idea, and people began to reform. Even they're not in the nation of Islam, but they begin to change their lifestyle and look at themselves a little different. That, to me, mm. is the core of what happened. In the 70s, at Mosque Number 7, we developed a series of lecture, a lecture series called Respect for Life. And one of those was the role of the black woman, the role of the black mother. What is the role of the black woman in the nation of Islam? Well, I must say this, that, um, that she has an equal role. You know, there's a ayat in the Quran that says the believing women, the believing men, the charitable women, the charitable men. You know, and uh, I must say that the brother who made a profound impact on the treatment of women from the Honorable Elijah Muhammad is Minister Farrakhan. And because of his very difficult upbringing, and his love and respect for what his mother struggled with, and which many black women struggle with the same thing. He's been a champion of the pain and the hurt of black women and how they must be treated uh, by men who respect them as the source of them being in the world. You know, all of us was produced through a woman, through fainting and pain. And... um the role of the woman now is that she can do anything that she wants to as a woman as long as it doesn't take her out of her character, as long as it doesn't represent the debauchery of the Western world. But she can use her brain. The, the woman is the person who saved us in the days of slavery. It was mm. her strength of character. It was her who shielded us and her who even gave herself to the white man at times to save us. But she should be respected. So, But in the Muslim world, the woman is our Achilles' heel. They use cultural things and parts of the Muslim world to show that how these Muslims treat women, which is really uh, bad because most of it is completely wrong. It has nothing to do with our faith, but more or less the culture of that particular society. And they take stories that wouldn't uh, deserve two paragraphs in print of a small village in uh, northeast Pakistan. And uh, and in this village, um, during Ramadan, the mayor said that the women should not go out in the street unescorted. This was on the actual news uh, overseas. I mean, if this mayor made that decision during Ramadan that women shouldn't go in the street unescorted, then why did it make international news? Why was it all over the news? And all it was was a signal that these Muslims are crazy and they mistreat women. And so because of cultural expressions in some Muslim society that I must admit that some of them are backwards, they make that like this is what Muslims do and they are absolutely incorrect. The the point about culture and faith, just flesh that out for us, because the way 
things are presented in the media which we take as truth, especially when a talking head says it on the 7 o'clock news, culture and faith, what's the difference? Okay. Well, as Muslims, and this is worldwide with Muslims, now you have to realize the Honorable Elijah Muhammad made a profound statement, and I know it upset a lot of people, but he said that there are million, uh, millions of ignorant Muslims in the world. The population of Muslims is 1.6 billion. 1.6 billion Muslims are not all scholars. There are masses of people who are in the faith because their father was in the faith, but they're not learned scholars. So the Muslims uh, have a saying that, you know, Islam didn't come to change your culture unless it conflicts with the religious principles. So I'll give you an example. In certain cultures, uh, they do certain things. The Hausa people um, in the West Africa, and most of the Hausa-speaking people are Muslims. All across northern Nigeria, Ghana, uh, southern Niger, parts of the um, Cameroons, you'll find that people speak the language of Hausa, and the Hausas have a certain culture. Their food, the way that they handle family uh, matters, uh, they believe strongly in extended families, such as you may have a son, and uh, if your first son and you're just married, your sister will take the son and actually raise him for you mm-hmm. and, and, and raise him to a young man. Now, that's a cultural thing. Mm. People say, well, is that right? It's cultural. But it doesn't conflict with the principles of Islam. You know, mm. it's like if the uh, Chinese people, which the Muslims, and there's 150 million of them in, in the uh, western part of China, uh, if they have certain Chinese cultural things that they do, such as their diet, their dress, that's their culture. It doesn't conflict with the religion. But when culture is a problem with religion, say if the culture of a people, uh, I'm going to use us as an example, uh, those of us from the uh, parents who came from the South and moved to New York, New Year's, we cook a pig's head. Mm-hmm. Now, that's a cultural expression uh, a pig's head and black eyed peas and chitlins on the New Year's Day. Now, that was something that we did culturally. Mm-hmm. Black families did it. But now mm-hmm. when you become a Muslim, that cultural practice is in conflict with your religion. I'm trying to make it so it's very clear and simple. So that cultural practice you would have to drop because it does conflict with your religion. Uh, the drinking of alcohol. Now, we... Uh, alcohol drinking is during the holidays, Christmas, and so forth. Everybody is drinking. Now, if you become a Muslim and alcohol is forbidden, according to uh, Prophet Muhammad, who broke the wine bottles and gradually took the people off of alcohol, then you still want to uh, have that cultural practice, then that's in conflict with religion. Um, the Holy Quran says that our women should dress modest. Your cultural expression may be a miniskirt. You like that. But that's in conflict with the directives of our faith, not only out of Hadith or Sunnah, but even in the Holy Quran where it talks about um, covering oneself to the women. So that's the difference between 
mm. uh, culture and faith. And I'm, I'm making it very simple. I mean, there's much more to it, but at least uh, your listening audience can understand this clash. Uh, one thing I want to say about that also, with the um, the Islamic movements in the Middle East, many of the Muslims under the guise of modernity, they wanted to be a part of the modern world, and they felt that the uh, practices that they had were backwards, they moved away from uh, certain practices that they had, and it and it kind of subsumed them in the pollution of Western culture. It's called cultural pollution. And when the men and the women begin to look at their children, and their children were not what they wanted them to be, not what they hoped that they would be, they wanted to get back to their culture of how they raised their family, and many of them found the only way back was through their faith. That's why you have the uh, revival of Muslim movements. It's not revival of extremists who want to kill people in the West. It's that they were taken away from their culture, how they raised their family, their love of family, their uh, love of education, um, the respect for their women and their parents, all of this they began to lose going after the Western idea, and they wanted to get it back. But how do you get it back? And it was only through faith in their belief system that they were able to regain uh, their cultural expression and things that they did before they got lost in the um, pollution of the Western world. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the Keys 107 Network on blogtalkradio.com. Our guest is Brother Akbar Muhammad. He's the international representative of the Nation of Islam in Africa and beyond, Minister Farrakhan's representative. And we have a few more minutes with him, and hopefully we can get a call in. And uh, if our engineering is set up, the telephone number is 213 Nine four three three six one eight two one three nine four three three six one eight. Hit one on your telephone keypad, and that lets our engineer know that you have a question. Once again, two one three nine four three three six one eight. Hit one on your telephone keypad and let us know that you have a question. And this morning on the Ramadan prayer line. You spoke of acts of kindness during the month of Ramadan in particular. Uh, flesh that out for us. Yes. Uh, it comes from the 107th uh, surah of the Holy Quran. Um, and it's very beautiful. And uh, during the month of Ramadan, uh, Ramadan is uh, a month that is a beautiful month for those who are in or out of the faith. And the beauty of the month is that we spend 30 days, 29 or 30 days, fasting from sunup to sundown. And not only, and it's not starvation. Don't even think of it as starvation. I don't know one Muslim that I know that uh, faith has entered into his heart that say, I'm starving during Ramadan, I'm practicing this. But it's a time for your own self-discipline. Uh, all of the... Uh, scientists of the human body know that fasting is good for you because it gives the body a chance 
to cleanse itself, you know, and throw off a lot of the toxins of the stuff that we eat in our society. And also, it gives you a chance to reflect on what you've done the last year, to be with your family nightly for dinner, to pray with them, ask God's uh, forgiveness, his mercy, uh, and it strengthens you as an individual. It gives you a chance to look at your life. Where do you want to go? What do you hope for? And then the acts of kindness during Ramadan, where you can feed someone, where you try to avoid conflict and arguments, um, to see if I can spend a, a month, and my wife and I don't get into it for a month, uh, to uh, talk to the children. And as the young children, 14 and 15, 16, begin to fast, and this uh, discipline is developed. So I use the acts of kindness because in that particular um, surah in the Holy Quran, it talks about woe to the praying ones who are unmindful of their prayers and they refrain from acts of kindness, uh, but they only pray to be seen of men. And it's so beautiful because you are not fasting to be seen of men. You are fasting because, number one, it was given to you in your religious tradition. Uh, Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, fasted. And you're not trying to impress other people, even with your acts of kindness. Sometimes you do a good deed, charity, help someone. But you didn't help someone so that they could broadcast, uh, Brother Leroy, just help so-and-so, and that's how you feel. But it's between you and God. It's an act of kindness that you feel that God has blessed you to live this long, to go through your trials, and now you find some small act of kindness that you want to do for someone else, in essence saying, thank you, Allah, for what you've done for me. Thank you for what you've brought me through. And there are people who are less fortunate to me than I am and people who don't have the knowledge that God has blessed me with that has sustained me, so I want to do an act of kindness. That's what I was talking about this morning. I couldn't explore the whole piece, but uh, that's where it's taken from the Holy Quran. What difference, if any, is there between an act of kindness and a good deed? (laughs) Listen, I think you can tie them together. Okay. Uh, I, I uh, I think you can tie them together a good deed and an act of kindness. Some people think that it's only about giving of money. You know, they think that uh, money and charity, but a smile is an act of kindness. A word of comfort to someone who's going through a change is an act of kindness. It's a good deed, but we call it uh, in our faith tradition the acts of kindness. As as we conclude, Brother Akbar, when... The people outside the nation of Islam, even even those inside, coming in to the ranks, um, I was confronted with back in the when I came in. All right, uh, we sell papers, so that was a moment of truth for me. And wow, man, I came in here to join. Now why I got to be selling papers? And um, the more I got into it, the more I became a part of 
the sea. I think Mao Zedong had something about become a fish among the people or something like that. You, you might know it better than I. But the still today, folks can look at the brothers with papers as being so-called paper boys or they got them selling papers. Give a perspective on that based on your overall knowledge and awareness of communications and the vital role that a paper or a news uh, or a station or a cable station, whatever, can play in the role of a nation or a movement? Well, I mean, it's an excellent question because I face the same challenge. My, But my belief in what it brought me out of and what I was doing in the street was so high. And the fact that the, and we were taught as young Muslims, as you were taught, that this is the way to wake our people up and spread the word. But I want those in New York to remember that school on 116th Street, uh, 1,500 students, uh, two different sessions for the um, men and the boys, right there on 116th Street and Lenox Avenue, that beautiful school. And then the ones we opened in Brooklyn and then in Queens and then in the Bronx. It was that newspaper that those brothers were on that corner selling to you for 25 cents that made mm. it possible. You know how expensive education is. Mm. And it, the brothers made it possible for us to educate our babies because most of us couldn't afford a tuition that would take care of the uh, school. There were no grants coming to us. There mm. were no big organizations or no countries, Arab countries, giving us money. But it was that young brother who threw away his so-called pride, he's out of the street, he don't want to be a paper boy. But when he realized what that paper was doing in terms of education and moving the nation forward, allowed us the freedom to open up businesses and do things, then he didn't have that kind of problem. Plus, he was putting into the hands of his people a word that could redeem them from the madness that they had found themselves in. So it had twofold. And every brother... Uh, that came in, took on that responsibility. And a lot of them wrestled with it. A lot of them left the nation over it. But we couldn't stop the movement of the nation because some men just couldn't bite that bullet. If you couldn't bite that bullet and you could do something else for your nation and you loved the nation, then you could try to do something else. But that's what we did as young men. And now with modern technology and online, uh, the papers, it's different today. And brothers who uh, who are more scientific in their approach, you know, it's not just a man who goes out on a street corner, and he's not doing that to show to show out, but he wants to get that word out. Then he has to use his ingenuity and modern technology of how to move that same word, whether it's over the internet. They have now uh, asked Farrakhan, um, Minister Farrakhan, broadcast weekly. Uh, a program called The Time and What Must Be Done. And uh, God willing, he said he's going to, I talked to him this morning, he's going to complete the year. But it is a tremendous program. So it's a, a way of doing the same thing that we did, Brother Leroy, when we were young, on the street corner. And mm -hmm. we didn't just have a few brothers on the street corner. <clears throat> we had hundreds, mm -hmm. hundreds uh, mm -hmm. fanned out across the city of New York and every neighborhood where our people lived there was that Muhammad Speaks. 
and uh, a well-respected paper for its international coverage, news from Africa and Cuba and Central and South America, the Caribbean, and also attacking the kind of things in this society that were aimed against our people. So, no, I understand it clearly. And some people, that that's not their cup of tea. They just can't do it. You know, they're medical doctors. It's better for you to be a medical doctor and mm. use your time, acts of kindness to help our people than mm. to look at your medical profession as a way to continue to earn more money for yourself, regardless of whatever the people are suffering. So one, it's a good question, of, and thank you. One, one of the ironies, Brother brother Minister Akbar, is that the, the image of brothers on the street with the paper and the comments of some who will uh, comment when they haven't seen us, even though they didn't buy the paper, is where where have you all been? Even though they may have bought right. the <laughs> there is something about the visibility that uh, is is basically part of the institution of of is the nation of Islam around that right. brothers have to be going door to door and on corners at strategic times. Right, <clears throat> you're so right. Um, see, even though. People say, man, I ain't going to do that. But when those brothers are not there, they miss them. They're like, uh, uh, I feel kind of secure when I see the brothers around. And when I see them cleaned up, brothers who came out of the street or came out of jail or came out of the university, and I see them clean and living this clean life, it's almost like our people have hope that we can make it. We can be different. We can be better. And the brothers are like that signal to them. Oh, no. Uh, Brother Akbar, you've been cut off. Uh, can you hear me? Yeah, Hello? I can hear you now. You, you said like that brother. Yes, like the brother in the street when they see them. Did you hear what I said about it's hope that we can be better? Yeah. That we can yeah. do better for ourselves. Look at these brothers. Yesterday, some of them were in the street, gangbangers and dope dealers and wife abusers and alcohol and drugs uh, in their body and uh, vicious and shooting each other. And then all of a sudden, he heard a word that cleaned him up, and the people that know him from the neighborhood see him on a corner with a final call newspaper, clean, with a suit on, and clean-shaven and groomed and a handsome young man now, it gives them hope. And that's why when they don't see the brothers, they bring it up. If, it, mm-hmm. if they just dismissed it, you know, I'm not thinking about them brothers. I don't see them, and I ain't thinking about them. But they will actually mention it to you. I don't see the brothers. Yeah, but and, I don't uh, see y'all. What you talking about? I don't see y'all no more. <laughs> yeah, see? No. Um, <clears throat> One last one last thing, and, and I'll let you go, Brother, Brother Minister Akbar, and that is uh, I don't know what Savior's Day it was, but I recall the messenger saying every apartment is a grave. Does that ring a bell to you? I don't. I don't okay. remember him saying it, but I sure remember the minister saying it. Okay. All right. Very that's good. right. 
And your idea is to knock on that door and see if you can resurrect what's in the grave behind that door. (laughs) And and the fact of the matter is there have been so many brothers who have been in a position to raise people out of that apartment into a better life just by their example and inviting them to the mosque and being a link with a higher form of consciousness than would otherwise be available to our people in that particular neighborhood. Brother Minnesota, I want to thank you very much for joining Uh, us, taking time out. You're a traveling man and you're in motion, and we will be reaching out for you again. And may the good Lord, may Allah continue to bless you with a great Ramadan. And also, uh, folks, RamadanPrayerLine.com, and you can get the telephone number to tune in to the Ramadan prayers at 5 o'clock on the East Coast. And uh, here, Brother Minister Akbar, give the opening presentation, which is always very informative. My brother, thank you very much, and may Allah continue to bless you and your family. As-salamu alaykum. Wa alaykum salam, and thank you, Brother Leroy, for the opportunity. Yes, sir. As-salamu alaykum. Wa alaykum salam. Brothers and sisters, we have some announcements. Then we're going to our second guest, Dr. Kwabana. Uh, Shanti, he's of uh, North Carolina, he's a psychologist, and uh, another traveler, one who has written the psychotechnology of brainwashing, plus other papers that are of value to our growth and development. So we have these announcements coming up. Uh, Support the commercial, uh, uh, support those people, those companies that support the Keys 107 network keep the money flowing in the circle, find a way to spend money with your own kind. If you do 50 cents more than what you've been doing, that would make a tremendous difference, according to Brother Dennis Kimbrough. So stay tuned. We'll be right back with our second guest. Keys 107 and the FOI Board of Directors is proud to present The Final Call. The Final Call is the country's unique leading source for news. Founded by the Honorable Louis Farrakhan, National Representative of the Most Honorable Elijah Muhammad in the Nation of Islam, the final call follows in the tradition of Muhammad Speaks with hard-hitting national and international news and coverage of political issues. It is the official communications organ of the Nation of Islam. Founded in the 1930s as the final call to Islam, the newspaper evolved into Muhammad Speaks in the 1960s and boasted a circulation of 900,000 a week with monthly circulation of 2.5 million. Today, the Final Call newspaper serves a readership of diverse economic and educational backgrounds, including circulation in North America, Europe, Africa, and the Caribbean. Read the Final Call newspaper. You can find one of the beautifully bow-tied representatives in your community or read FinalCall.com. Rafika Consultants and Services, LLC, is on the cutting edge of emerging technologies for designing online classes and providing face-to-face and virtual technology training or help with computer programs, web design, and graphic arts. We also provide biography writing services for websites. For more information, give us a call at 631-399-0149. That's 631-399-0149. The Fluffs present the alphabet. Now found in paperback, sporting a five-star rating on Amazon.com. 
107, fashions and gifts that bring out the best in you. Moon 107 is an online retail store featuring women's and men's clothing and the gift shop. The woman's shop features stylish tunics, suits, and accessories and offers the well-dressed woman an outlet to find the perfect gift for self or for someone else. The men's shop offers classy French cut shirts for the well-dressed man. The gift shop offers organic skin, hair, bath accessories, and inspirational music imported from Africa, India, and Asia, as well as jewelry and accessories. Moon 107, fashions and gifts that bring out the best in you. Don't forget to visit moon107.com. And this is the Keys 107 Network. We are thankful to the Most High for blessing us with another day on this good earth, another day to do some good deeds for ourselves and our families, for our community and for humanity in general. Having a positive mental attitude towards our own selves first, our families, and spreading out from that, we can make a change. We can make a difference. And it takes one to make a difference, setting an example. This is a classroom setting, and hopefully we'll be in a position to take your calls as we get into our discussions with Dr. Kwabana Ashanti and Dr. Kwabana Fahim Ashanti of North Carolina. He's the author of The Psychotechnology of Brainwashing, and we're going to wish him a very great evening and thank him for joining us. God bless you, my brother. Thank you so much. Glad to be with you. And uh, the psychotechnology of brainwashing was our introduction, my introduction to you. I'm going through the the um, the uh, uh, final call newspaper, and there's an article written by the brother. His name is. It always happens when you're on radio in front of a mic. The names disappear, and you just know the circumstances. And I reached out for him. He's in Kansas City, the brother in Kansas City, and I did an interview with him. Dr. Dr. Harry X. Dr. Harry? Harry X. Davidson. Yes, Brother Davidson. And so I reach out for him a second time. Let me reach out for Brother Davidson. Davidson can't handle the, the timing of the interview, but he says, look, let me give you the name of this brother in North Carolina. He's good. I said, you sure? He said, man, this brother's going to rock you. So I said, all right, if you say so. And we've been in contact ever since. And that is uh, our introduction was the psychotechnology of brainwashing. Share with us the book and the contents and how it came to being that you wrote a book, The Psychotechnology of Brainwashing. Uh, Yes, how did I happen to write it? Yes. In other words, what was the motivation for you to write, even come up with the title, The Psychotechnology of Brainwashing? It just wasn't brainwashing. You said The Psychotechnology. Yes. Well, first of all, I do have a doctorate in uh, in psychology. and uh, But the seeds of the psychotechnology book actually got started in 1976 when I wrote the Witty Lynch Letter. Mm. That was that was the that was the seeds that eventually ended up being my 
book called The Psycho Technology of Brainwashing. Mm. And actually, I, th- I, 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 actually, I thought I had made up the term because I'd never heard it before. So I says it's the technology of how you use psychology to brainwash someone. So that's how I came up with the title. Okay, and um, that book, you you had limited edition. They would when you went on the internet, it was selling out, selling out. Uh, on Amazon, it was a hundred and some odd dollars, et cetera. So I said, well, what kind of book is this that um, is valued by the folks out there? And there's only one available, and that sort of thing. What was and is the reaction to that book? And uh, the indicator that the ideas and the concepts within that book has been picked up by others. Yes, actually, uh, I was shocked uh, when when I, I I came out with it. I printed the book myself and I bound it myself, so I could only it took me uh, approximately two months to do one thousand copies. It's it's a three hundred fifty page fifteen page book. So it took me it took me two months just to do uh, about one thousand copies, mm-hmm. and as soon as I would get them, they would be sold out generally within three weeks. Mm-hmm. So I so I I, uh, I I I have a problem that it's a good problem, but most book authors uh, would like to have. And that is, I have more demand for the book than I have books. So to solve that problem. I I can no longer print it myself, so I'm farming it out now to a, a professional printer. And my first edition coming out this time will be 5,000 copies, and hopefully I can actually uh, get it on the bookshelves where people can have it in their hand. Now, actually, on, on, on uh, uh, Amazon.com, the price of the book went up to four hundred and eighty dollars for a used yeah. copy, and I, I, I was just amazed at that. I, yeah. I was shocked that people found it, you know, that valuable. Now I didn't sell it for that. I actually sold the first copy, well, the first edition copy. I sold it for uh, t- uh, for, for thirty dollars. Yeah, and I was shocked that the people who had them, as they got more valuable, start putting them out for sale on Amazon.com, and the price just started going crazy. And the more expensive the price was, the quicker the book was sold on better condition. And uh, actually, I have another one out there. It's called Root Work and Voodoo and Mental Health. And that book on Amazon.com sells for $1,000. Wow. for a copy. And, 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 again, I'm out of both of them, but I will have both of them back in, in print. Uh, within within a month's time, so but the 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 I was wondering who the hell is buying these books. So yeah, that's so that's, that's the next question. I, I, most people say blacks don't do no reading, but I'm here to tell you blacks do more reading than most groups. However, it's what they read that counts. For example, uh, blacks do so much reading of the Bible. It's ridiculous. If they were not reading the Bible and they were reading organized books, they'd be the most reading people in the world. But mm. my particular book itself has, has been bought by black people as well as uh, white people who's trying to understand who I am and where I'm coming from. Mm. So, so, but uh, but this time uh, it's going to have a new cover on it. That's one of the one of my reasons. 
uh, for being in Africa. I just got back from Africa two, uh, two days ago, and uh, and I took some more photos, and the cover this time is going to be myself and another king on that front cover. Mm. And because no, my image is, is is very limited on the Internet, and that's by purpose. But yeah. that's sort of a background uh, on on uh, on the book. Okay, we're we're talking um, in a general way in this conversation as it relates to your my questions and your responses. They they always give rise to other areas of of possible information from you. When you look at your your book, the psychotechnology of brainwashing, the the contents of that, and you fast forward. You're dealing with how how it has been done, how it was done, and has been done, and is is happening with black people in terms of the brainwashing into the value system of being Europeanized. When you look at that that process, which is in its origins overt and in the present covert. Over it means beating Toby. Your name is Kuta, your name is uh, Toby Kuta Kinti rather beating Kuta Kinti and telling him that his name is Toby until he he says it and becomes uh, you know quote the name that he answers to and that he goes by the that's overt covert of the subtle images. This is my my statement, not explaining your book. Right. When you look at when you look at the imprisonment of black people under the guise of the imprisonment of 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 American prisoners, and you look at the prisons being built underground, underground where the individuals do not see any sunlight, where they are isolated from other human contact, where what mind is this coming out of what what's going on here from a psychological standpoint based on what you can gather well there when you see uh when a group or a race of people uh living acting and looking nothing like their original race then you you that scientifically and by observation, you know there's something wrong with those people, period. Now, when this underground brainwashing was occurring, uh, it was done very deliberately and on purpose from the church all the way down to the slave owner itself. For example, my great-great-grandmother, uh, 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 was a slave who was owned by the Anglican Church in South Carolina. There was, matter of fact, the church owned 32 slaves as children, and they were. And I've seen records where they were baptized, sold, and so forth. I'm just pointing out that the institution of slavery was complete. It was vast. It wasn't just just human slave master, but also the institution of the church itself. Now. Uh, uh, for example, it's not normal. It's not normal in the least for a race of people to have names first and last 
from another race. It just does not happen. If you think I'm kidding, look at any other race, and I guarantee you their, name, their first and last names, 99% of the time, is going to be from their own race and language, period. But when you look at African Americans, we have 99% names, uh, especially the last name, from the white slave master to this day. For example, uh, and we, we we would see that as normal. We did not see that as abnormal. Uh, when uh, when we see uh, our women in particular buying hair from India, uh, going to beauty parlors, all these things, straightening their hair, this is abnormal for any group. We're the only people on the face of the earth that have kinky hair. That's very special. But we have been taught and brainwashed that that's not good. That's ugly. So that is abnormal. When you, right now, as I'm talking to you, I have no choice because we couldn't speak to each other in an African language because our language was taken away. But that is abnormal, actually. But it's nothing wrong with being able to speak another language as an international language. Nothing wrong with that. But I'm just saying we couldn't speak our natural language if our life depended on us. It was destroyed within us. Uh, when you go to religion, uh, it was the religion of Christianity that enslaved us in the first place. So the last thing we should be doing, almost like the Jews, when they turn against Nazism, there's no way in the hell we should be fighting Christianity because that is the very religion, Jesus Christ itself, as a, as a point person, that made slave us out of us in the first place. Matter of fact, your Bible, anyone listening out here, look in your Bible, you will see that it condones and supports slavery right now. Now, how could I, that's abnormal for us to be in something like that, but yet, some of our biggest heroes in America, Reverend T.D. Jakes, uh, Reverend Clifford Dollar, all of these people are huge. They go around around the world uh, practicing the very religion that made them slaves in the first place. That is abnormal. But we don't see that as abnormal. We are trained to see that as normal, a good thing. We are praised for doing that. Take a look at our biggest... Uh, civil rights leader today. That's Brother Al Sharpton, who processes straightens his hair. Well, that's just right, but I'm just saying that is abnormal, and that's an indicator that it's impossible for him to think of a leader to our liberation when he brainwashes himself. So, so, so I'm just pointing these things out. This, all other groups see us, and they see sickness and stupidity. But they won't tell us that. But I, in my book, I point it out and tell you how to make changes in it. Now, in my, in my case, my name was original Charles Davis. Now, that's a that's a Christian white name, and I'm I'm black. So when I went to get my doctorate degree in 1974, coming out of the University of Pittsburgh. I recognized that that was abnormal. So as a psychologist, as a counselor, I had to become the leader and heal for my people. So the first thing I did was start healing myself. 
everything in that my book, the cycle technology, I have actually gone through myself and tested it out. And as a result of that, I have a sense of more acceptance and more support from white people than the average black person does. The, most people think that I would uh, would be viewed as a militant or as anti-white. No, it's exactly the other way around. Uh, you see, I knew that when the first black became president of the United States, I knew he would have an African name, Barack Obama. If his name was James Smith, he never would have been elected to be president of the United States. That is a fact. Now, I'm just pointing these things out. Now, uh, over in Africa, when I watched the news, I would see the demonstrations about Trayvon Martin and stuff on the news, and I looked at people who were talking about how unfair and how unfair the justice system was to blacks in America, the whole thing. But I raised the question, well, if you dislike it so much, why in the world do we practice the very thing that's against us, and that's white, culture, white, religion, white, everything? If we really wanted to get back at them, we would clean up our act ourselves by taking back our culture. That is the biggest thing that we could ever do when we won't be dependent on somebody doing things for us. There's a reward in being yourself. Now, when we hear, when people in your list hear me talking right now, it goes in one ear, listen, hmm, and then it's gone. But yet, <laughs> when they're when they die and buried in the ground, they will take white supremacy to their grave with them for eternity because the name that they have, the religion that they have, will be with them in the earth, underground for infinity. I would never do that. Never. Mm. And let me tell you, tell you this. Uh, a friend of mine recently, uh, Christian, had his child Christian. Now, it seems like an innocent kind of thing, but here's a baby being brainwashed from day one by his parents by being taken to church and and, 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 and learning and to be Christian or become a Christian in the very religion that got him brainwashed in the first place and his ancestors. That's stupid. Mm-hmm. Everything I'm saying is generally known by all other race of people in America, but they wouldn't dare tell us that because... They need us to still serve them. Uh, um, um, they need us to still serve them. That's correct. Uh, the serving is not only physical, but it is looking up to them as though they are greater than us, and that feeds their their ego. That's precisely my words. That's precisely it. On both cases, when we go to college, we are told to go major in something so we can get a good job. The people who control the jobs right now are white people. We are not told to go to college to learn a skill to create your own job. That just don't even happen. So from from the time we enter school to the time we graduate with a Ph.D. or M.D. or law degree, we are taught how to serve the power structure that kept us down in the first place. And it is indeed crippling that one would come out. I'm not. I'm counting myself in that group. One would come out, great student, good mind, 
but bound up mentally where they can't do anything for themselves. That's correct. Um, matter, of fact, matter of fact, we go round and round in a circle, civil rights movement after civil rights. Look at any other group of people in America who are non-white. They have they suffer racism and discrimination too, but you don't see them out there doing all that. They t- have taken back their culture, their names, all these things, and they start building within. And, but, and but to us, we 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 feel helpless, and the, the and, and the brainwashing does build helplessness. That's what it. That's what it defines. The springboard for other groups to work from within and gain economic uh, stability. The springboard is they're coming into our communities and selling us things, whether it's food or or services or whatever. And that's the irony of this. This one of the ironies of the situation that black people find themselves in in the wilderness of North America. Ladies and gentlemen, our guest is Dr. Kwabana Fahim Ashanti. He's the author of The Psychotechnology of Brainwashing, and you have the opportunity of calling in, asking questions, etc. 213 943 313 2138 213 943 3618 This is a classroom. This is a classroom. I try to set up the shows that I do as classrooms. That means bringing someone who has some information or a point of view that we may not be treated to in the general media or in our own media, but bringing those people to you. You hear what they have to say, and you can ask a question, and that way we can build on the knowledge or the information that comes to us. Once again, 213-943-3618. Hit one on your telephone uh, keypad that lets our engineer know that you have a question. Also, for those who are using the computer, we have a chat room, and you can plug into the chat room, scroll down uh, on the site that you're uh, listening to, scroll down, you see the chat room, you can type a question in there, and uh, the engineer will convey it to us. Telephone number 213-943-3618. What are, let's say, uh, take three components of the psychotechnology of brainwashing and then come with the counterpoints that can begin to be used to offset them. Well, it's uh, written in the in the in the the white holy Bible that you must man know thyself. Now, everything that I have said so far, and everything I write in my book, The Psychotechnology, is teaching people how to know themselves. The brainwashing has us. We couldn't. We 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 couldn't tell you what ethnic group or what a tribe we came from. And period, we wouldn't know what it is. I've tested it out. I've seen. For example, anyone who thinks they know themselves, I can ask them what ethnic group are they, and they'll look at me strange. Like, what do you mean ethnic group? I'm black. Well, the truth of the matter is. They're not black. They're, I, I can look at somebody, and they might be damn near white, but they call themselves black, meaning they have African heritage. 
And I say, I say, well, what ethnic group do you come from? And they still were dumbfounded. I say, well, are you Zulu? Are you are you Jehosa? They say, what is that? That's the first test you can give to find out if anybody knows themselves. That's the starting point. So, how do you change that? You teach it. That's what I do. I run training classes, and I teach uh, everything in my book. I teach that in a training class in a 13-week course. And I literally teach the people because you have to because it's been brainwashed out. Now, that don't mean that you turn against white culture, turn against white religion, or turn against white anything. It means that you become truly bicultural. You understand your culture and you understand the white one. That's true by race, bicultural. But we call ourselves bicultural like we already know who we are. And, and that part of the problem with us is it's multiculturalism, among other things, that caused us to be brainwashed in the first place. So break down multiculturalism. The, the truth of multiculturalism, the tag. Well, it, it's saying that that we live in a society of other races in this world and this society. So we can get along better and cooperate better if we understand other races' culture. We can practice it and understand them. But they said as though we black people already know our own culture, and I'm saying we do not. We There oh, is no African culture among African Americans in the United States, period. It's well, not. Go, go, go. Keep, keep going on that. Keep going on that. We have, we have experts out here who are experts in teaching multiculturalism, <laughs> and and the very people who who who's teaching it, they don't even know their own culture. But what they do know is, and like the experts is understanding the African styles we have put into white culture. Yes, there's an African style, but the content is identical to the slave, the children of the slave master. But once we learn our own African one, then we can learn others and, and get along fine. No question about it. And oh. and and the, and the, and, the, and the research has proven that when our children are taught their own culture uh, in English and mathematics and engineering and stuff in school, the the gap between academic performance disappears. Matter of fact, we close the academic gap and surpass even white kids. The research has shown that. It's proven that. Matter of fact, you can go to your computer, put in Chick, Chick, C-H-I-C-K, elementary school, Kansas, and you will see an elementary school there that was the lowest performing in the state, all black, when it went to an Afrocentric curriculum where they were learning this stuff. They form perform higher than any other school and race in the state of Kansas. That's that's what the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, it's there. But yet our boards of education, we turn against them, we don't even look at stuff like that because we would rather suffer more than to go into something that we think is primitive and gender like. And that's and that's the exact opposite. Now now Doc from the standpoint of what's happening in the brain or 
what's happening with the spirit. I'm gonna I'm gonna use those two. What is the what is happening? What happens when these young students or the mature adults begin to learn who they really are, our our history as a people, not only in terms of ancient Africa, if we, we call it that, but also in terms of the dramatic contributions that blacks have made here in this country. What happens? What happens to the mind? What, what's going on that would make a transformation from a low-performing student to a high achiever? We automatically become much more academic, aggressive, become very aggressive, and we will work a teacher almost to death to get the information that they have. And if you don't know the information, you will still work them because you want them to teach you so you can learn. We will spend almost no time trying to become acceptable, to accept it. We can be the only black kid in the whole class, but we know who they are. We recognize that, hell, we might be the most superior person in there. You don't waste time trying to be accepted once you accept yourself. Mm. The, the depression, depression and mental health issues, uh, low self-esteem, it goes away. It disappears. Research in my clinical practice proves it. Mm. I'm not talking theory here. I'm actually talking science. And, and all the people who control the power in America know that I am. And they know that they don't have to worry about me because most of my people will not even listen to me because they, I'm not talking about civil rights. I'm not talking about integration. I'm talking about being a human being. That's different. Mm. Accepting your own and be yourself. That's correct. Getting into who you are uh, in terms of not only the broader general culture uh, that we belong to, I'm talking about that we, that we inherit from our ancestors, but also getting into our family line, who our That's grandfather right. is. Uh, there's, there's, there's goal or magic in that. Yeah, and then uh, the beautiful part is, once we have become deprogrammed and, and go and take our home manners back, we will recognize the sickness in our own family. But we won't get mad with them. We then become more patient and understanding and gradually begin to ask them for information that can help us become stronger, especially about the family. All right, I need you to hit that one again because there are those of us who get a little bit of understanding of of who we are, I'm calling it black consciousness. Conscious as to our history, and and the, the circumstance under which we were brought here, and that we weren't in need of refrigerators or jungle bunnies. And if we were over there, we'd be eating one another in a pot. The image that was created during the '60s uh, by the counter. Uh, or the the white supremacists putting out those notions, but the 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 knowledge of self is a catalyst, as you said. The quest for learning begins to outpace the teachers, almost equivalent to our going after more and more black history books, more and more black events. So we're going after knowledge with that same that same energy is 
is apparent across the board. It's not just in one area. It's across the board. That's correct. Matter of fact, we see in small spurts of everything I'm talking about right now because we are not quite as we were we were 100% basically a brainwash let's say let's say uh 20 years ago now we are only about 97% brainwash so i'm seeing some oh. little improvement and you're wow. starting to see spurts of genius coming from our own people regardless of income uh our, our neighborhood you start to see it. you start to see kids now our kids they like natural genius with computers Yes. And many of them are really making a mark. Take a look at Jay-Z. Jay-Z has no much formal education, but he has learned and he has seen and he began to copy. And as a result, you're starting to see amazing economic progress coming out of him. And he's gradually, gradually him and his wife getting spurts, if you will, of a little black consciousness. But it's, 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 it's still lacking, but it's, it's improvement. Ladies and gentlemen, our guest online is Dr. Kwabana Fahim Ashanti, and you can go into Google and look him up. What is your website, dear brother? Uh, it's uh, K, letters K F Ashanti A S H A N T I dot com. Go to use the Google, and that'll be the first thing that pops up. On Google, com. I want you to go to what I call victories, turnarounds, people that come into your sphere of influence, and the knowledge that you drop on them within your deprogramming, the knowledge that you drop on them and you, you experience or they experience a tremendous change. Their marks go up. They pursue business. Their their lives with their wives or husbands improve, etc. What victories can you share with us from from your school experience at the university? What experience can you share with us outside the school? Maybe a youngster who's brought to you uh, doing poorly in school, or adults who come into your sphere of influence. What can you share with us in terms of application of the techniques of deprogramming and the change that results therefrom? Well, one one person that comes to mind, matter of fact, he he he, he went to Africa with me, and he just got back with me. He's a he's a professor of counseling at Florida A and M University. I got him when he was a freshman, and he was in physics, and he had flunked out of out of school. And he happened to come into the council, and so I was head down, and I looked at him, and I said, well, I have something to help you. I began to teach him who he was. I taught him about the power blocks of, of any group of people, and I began to teach him the different methods that goes in each of the power blocks. He then, uh, his, he then became an honor student. He graduated as the first student uh, to graduate from this uh, uh 30,000 student university and black student in physics in 12 years. I took mm-hmm. him with him. I took him with me to Africa as a graduation present. He went this time when he went back with me, he went over as a doctor. He has his Ph.D. now. Mm-hmm. And he and he's had 
uh, he's hot topic. There are a lot of universities trying to trying to hire him away from this university. And his first book called uh, he's written a book that's that's a marvelous piece. It's called uh, How to Close the Academic Achievement Gap. This mm. book itself. He takes from his own personal experience as well as research, and he's written this out for all the people who have a concern, parents, the boards of education, the superintendent of schools, the teachers, and so forth. He, he, he throws it out. And not only that, uh, the way he carries himself, the whole thing, that he, 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 he's into African Islam. That's different now from regular Islam of the Quran, regular Islam, so most people don't know it, but the original Arabs, that's an African word, Arab, okay? They were from the Sudan, and they went to Egypt, and the oldest religion on the face of the earth is African Islam, followed by other traditions. I can point him out. I, there's another one who now uh, graduated, and and uh, he was a very troubled young man with a lot of emotional problems, and he was divorced. And I worked with him. He graduated, started working on Bank in New Jersey, and and in in uh, in banking security. Now he owns his own company. He works for himself, and he has ten employees. He's doing very well. He calls me every so often. Um, there's one that's now a psychiatrist uh, that uh, needed a lot of support to get through uh, her biology courses and so forth because. She was a very pretty, light-skinned girl, and uh, and she was being abused by a lot of her uh, uh, black friends. And um, she's now a psychiatrist, doing very well. Uh, that, that's the university type. Now, I have uh, run into people at the coffee shop, things like that. I can see some of them are drug addicts. And I, I, it took me a while to finally get them to sit down and, and, and listen to me and come to my training class. But one just uh, graduated, and he, uh, he he's married. The book separates from his wife, however. And he's doing really very well. He has a job now. He, he He's working for, I talked to a friend of mine who owns a janitorial company and gave, gave him a job. He's doing very, very well. He's now beginning to make uh, uh, tapes uh, singing uh uh, uh, his own songs. Then I have a number of them who I've never seen before in my life. They're in they're in uh, federal and state prisons with charges of murder uh, to drug dealing, and and they write me, they call me, I send them lessons and so forth. They have done so well now that uh, the chaplain of the prison has called me, sent me letters, invited me to come. And and to uh, uh, I had a center on information first on um, African religion and spirituality where he, he appreciated it and then they invited me down there so I went down there and so I have a number of people like that matter of fact while I was living in Africa I sent three of them a letter straight from Africa because I figured that they would appreciate it so I did that so it's 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 it's, 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 it's you don't have to have a special a special student, a, a, a brilliant student, just have to be breathing and can listen and hear, and you can make progress <laughs> with it. All right, hold on, hold on, Dr. Ashanti. Our number is 213-943-3618, 213-943-3618, and hit the phone on your telephone keypad. You'll be 
on the air. And we have a caller. God bless you. Thank you for your call. You're on the black air. Yes, this is Brother James, and I'm actually engineering tonight, and I have a few folks in the chat room, and I promise you, um, I believe it's Sister Aya Adua, uh, um, she stated that she has, uh, Dr. Ashanti, she has used your brainwashing test at a school that self-identified as Afrocentric, and some of the teachers felt threatened that they didn't know an eighth of the information in the questions asked on the test. Mm. That was a one, one statement she made. And, and that, then and she that, says... That test is designed to be used by fifth graders, by the way. Okay, say that again. <laughs> yeah. My test is... Yeah. My test I give the people is called the Ashanti Brainwashing Test. And I standardize it on teachers, uh, educators in, in college. And they understand that if you give it to members of Board of Education or teachers or whatever, they can answer almost 100% on Form A, which is dealing with European culture. But on African culture, they score an average of H, E-I-G-H-P. Mm. And they feel very threatened by it. Yes. Uh, so uh, very real. Brother James, hold on a second. Um, yes. Explain that piece about threatened. Is that insecure? Is that somebody knows something about me now that that is embarrassing to me? What what is that that threatened piece? They feel very insecure, and they say somebody now knows that I'm not as smart as I pretend to be. <laughs> That's exactly what it is. Oh man! Uh, but you've been I've had, I've, I've had I've had some to come to me and say, Doctor Shunt. You said you can help me, but instead, I'm crying. And these and, and this one person had a PhD degree, and I understood. I knew he was not going to pass because he's about one of the most brainwashed guys I know. But he's a very good friend of mine. <laughs> okay, brother James. Well, one other one other comment she made. She um the um. First of all, she wanted to thank us for uh, sharing the information that she presented in the chat room, and she says, yes, they were embarrassed that they didn't know the information exactly. So you hit it right on the head. But she also goes on to say that Afrocentric education is the answer, and Hotep, can you please give the Kansas school information again, Ashante? Okay, I, I, I didn't understand what you want me to do. Uh, to give she, the, the name of that school in Kansas City and whatever information oh, you have on that. It's Chick, C-H-I-C-K, Chick Elementary School Afrocentric Program. Chick, C-H-I-C-K, Elementary School. If you can't like, remember, just put in just put in successful Afrocentric education, and, and you'll see a lot of them jump up, but one would be Chick. Well, chick as okay. in like a baby chick. That's correct. Okay, in Got Kansas it. City. Um, okay, all right. Telephone number 213-943-3618. You also have the opportunity to go into the chat room. Remember, this is a classroom, and you could call in a study group uh, to an extent where ideas are shared and we turn things over and around and, you can only gain from that kind of dialogue. This is the kind of thing that we need to be doing 
in our homes and or you know invite friends over just stay within your family you and your husband or significant others uh cousins aunts get together a study group around the principles that brother Kwadena Ashanti has been sharing um uh once again I'm going back some of the some of the keys okay we have another another contribution God bless you. You're on the black ear. Oh, oh, Hotep, uh, Brother Leroy, uh, Doctor Asante, Hotep, and this is E.I. Ajwa. I was I'm the person that uh, the brother just shared my information in the uh, chat room. Yes, ma'am. And um, yes, um, you know this is this is great to uh, information that you're sharing. Thank you so much, Asante, uh, Sada, Brother Leroy. All your shows are so great. I'm so glad that you know I'm on your um, Link so that you let me know when your shows are on because the shows are always excellent. Sante Sana, but yeah, I wanted to share about that experience and um, you know what it is that the the um, our teachers come prepared at European institutions pretty much, and outside of if they don't take a a class in African American studies and or you know uh, sometimes they can take it as an elective or if they're not majoring in it, you know, per se, like like I did myself. But um, And also it depends on the professor you have as well, you know, how much they know. You know, that's what that's what you're going to know. So when they come out and, and the teachers come out, they, they're prepared, they got their certification, they had a degree, and they come in schools that identify them as being Afrocentric, and they find that they don't know anything at all about African history, Not not even – you know, you know, not even their own African history. I always say start in your family. You know, start with your own family, you know. And um, so it's really a challenge. And if, I'm saying this, if, if this is the answer for us, then what is it that we're so afraid of? We are so traumatized by the systems that we support through our tax dollars that don't support us in turn that we don't know which which way to go, you know. We just don't know which way to go. And even though the answer is right here in our face, I'm so thankful for people like, you know, yourself, Brother Leroy, and and, and the great scholar, African minds that we have that are exposing us to the information. But we have to study and we have to read and we have to learn, you know, about ourselves. And we just so we just are people that want to belong. But in, in our wanting to belong, we give up so much of ourselves. And it's, you know, it's really not good for us. You know, Doctor Ashanti, um, share with our good sister the the methodology that you used at the university in order to teach the psychotechnology of brainwashing, or to deprogram the young the the students who came into your orbit, and the point is, or the heading is how one person can make a difference against great odds. Yes. Um, first of all, um, I just want to point out and support the sisters that just called in, but I would like to add something to that. Uh, we are not so much afraid as we are brainwashed. Brainwashing itself caused this. Uh, 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 I know plenty of people are not afraid at all, but the brainwashing keeps them from taking the very first step, so they are taught to reject right off the bat. That's the power of the brainwashing, and we only knew the power of brainwashing. 
we would discuss it more. But we simply we seem to think that we can just overcome just like that. No, it really takes deprogramming to get rid of it. Okay, now uh, I I was one of uh, one of fifty seven black faculty members out of three thousand at a university down here in the south, and and I worked in the counseling center counseling people, so. I found a way where I can do my reprogramming without going through uh, getting permission from this person, that kind of person. I'm working with human settings. so I started a, if you will, a, 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 I call it a black support group. Now, in the support group, I all the principles that's in my book that became my table of contents and study guide. Each week, I would put them through a piece of this. And uh, uh, then, and then gradually, uh, I was the only black male, by the way. And so gradually, if I had say thirty students or sixty students, they improved so much they wouldn't be coming to the counseling center anymore. They were on the country my group, and I would keep getting new ones coming in. So that made my work less less harder. So that's the way I did it, and I did it like that for twenty nine years. And I kept impeccable records because I wanted, I was dealing with uh, research and science, and I wanted to be able to prove and have the documentation that it works. So that's the way I did it. Okay, okay. And in other words. Okay, I appreciate appreciate that um, clarity that it's not fear, it's the brainwashing. And um, yeah, so. Uh, we are, we're, we're, you know, most of our young people and old people too have to be almost fearless to live in this society to start with. Uh-huh. We are concerned, yeah. yes, but you know, we but it's that brainwash. It's how deep and how powerful it is. Even with myself, I have the I have the constant getting checked with myself. It's very deep because we're we're in the environment. That's correct. correct. You're facing it all the time. That, that promotes it. That's correct. And once you have been imprinted, you know, it's not easy to erase. That's true. That's true. That's very true. I was I was fortunate that my grandfather, uh, my first ex- exposure in, um, to African history was at age eight um, through my grandfather. I was learning in school about the Spanish conquistadors. And so he said, well, you know, so he, I came home from school. He said, well, what did what did your, um, what you learn about in school today? So I told him. And he said, well, you know, well, did they tell you about the Moors of Spain? And I said, no. And he sat down and he told me the story about the Moors of Spain. So I went back to school the next day and I asked the teacher, I said, well, you know, how come we don't, we're not learning about people that look like us? And she kept mm-hmm. ignoring me. And finally, I realized that she couldn't answer the question, and so she just didn't, you know. And so it didn't hit me, you know, till eight years later. I was 16, and I happened to work in a bookstore. I was working in an African uh, gift shop. And, oh, man, I got to all of those books, and I just, I was already a reader. And I got to those books, and I just never stopped. And so mm. I got to the point I had my master's and a Ph.D. in African-American studies now. Mm-hmm. And I am the community uh, wow. or president of Afrocentricity International, uh, Philly PA chapter, 
Uh, we just did a conference here in Philadelphia. We had Africans from around the world. It was really powerful, and, uh, you know, you, I conversed you, on a regular basis. Did you have basis any exposure for Dr. Malefia Santi? Dr. Malefia Santi was the chair yes. of my uh, committee, yes. Oh, um, okay. Very much in touch with him, yes. And he, I, I, yes I was with yes. him in Africa last week. Was he? Yes, he, yes, yep. He was in Africa last week, yep. Oh, man, mm-hmm. we talked to him there. I'll talk to you. But, yeah, he's a, you know, he's, uh, you know, he's just, it's just uh, phenomenal the work that he's done and how many uh, also scholars that he's produced. And we are so happy here in Philadelphia that he has been uh, reappointed as the chair of the African-American Studies Department at Temple University. Um, We're just so happy. Uh, We need him there, and we're so happy that he um, decided to go back and, you know, we'll really move forward. With his chairmanship at uh, at Temple University, we need him. You're, you're, a, ble- you're a, ble- a blessed young lady. Yeah, well, yeah, this yeah. is what I want to point out, as, as you know. One thing that comes with Afrocentricity and learning yourself, what automatically yeah. comes with it is economic development. That comes automatically with it. You, the first thing, once you find out who you are, what you're about, the next thing comes is your religion, spirituality, and the third thing is economic development. It's automatic. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. My sister, I I want you to take my email address so you can keep me abreast of the activities that your group is involved in because I I reach out for speakers, uh, when I say speakers, guests, on the shows that I do per the kind of contributions they're making. So, um, I... I reach everywhere. Uh, my email is Leroy L E R O Y. Uh-huh. The letter the letter B, as in boy uh-huh. T, as in Tom M as in Mary, at m s n dot com. Leroy B T M at m s n dot com. Okay, I have you. Yes. All right. All right. And, yes. And, yes. And thank I, you I will definitely much. keep in touch. And thank okay. you so much for the um, brainwashing test. Uh, it's excellent. Um, you know, it's the way you can read people out and also, you know, help people really find out what, you know, who they are as African people. Because if you don't know, there's a lot of basic questions on there, you know. Mm-hmm. And it was some of them I had to collaborate with a colleague to make sure we had the, we had the answers. And, um, you know, we, we got them all together and everything. Then we found out that you posted the answers, so we was able to, you know, get the answers. But that was really yeah. That's really I mean, I, I, I if you can guess the, uh, if you know the answer to part A, you automatically know the answer from the Georgia question part B because I matched them. That one is African and one is European. Mm. Okay, okay, excellent, excellent, excellent. It's, right. it's definitely an awakening test for African people. Uh, if you say you African, then you you need to know this information. If you don't know that information, you need to make it your business to know that information. It's an excellent test. I love it. I love it. I oh, highly recommend thank it. Thank you, ma'am. Thank you, ma'am. <laughs> All right. God bless you, my sister. Thank you, sir. All right. Hope to brothers. Enjoy the evening. Brother Ashanti, we are at the black end of this session, always a very, very dynamic and stimulating sessions that we have when we interview you. Uh, give your website, how people can connect with you. And my web? Okay. Go ahead. My website is K as in K F Ashanti. 
That's spelled A-S-H-A-N-G-I dot com. Use a Google search, and it'll be the first thing that pops up. My telephone number is area code 919-452-4262. I'm in Durham, North Carolina. Now, repeat that number again. 919-452-4242-6262. Excellent. Okay. Brother Shanti, I want to thank you once again for joining us on the Keys 107 Network. We look forward to speaking with you in the very near future. Thank you very much, and I wish uh, your audience uh, uh, luck tonight. Take care. God bless you. Brothers and sisters, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for joining us on the Keys 107 Network. You can advise friends to listen to the show that will be in archive tomorrow morning or late tonight, and they go into the Keys 107, and they look for the communicators, Respect for Life, and plug in today's date, and they'll be able to hear the interview with with Brother um, Minister Akbar Muhammad and the second one following that with Dr. Ashanti. We'll be back this coming Saturday, 8 p.m. Eastern Time, and we remind you that Minister Farrakhan is on every Saturday Eastern Time at 7 p.m. He's on the website www.com. N O I dot O R G N O I dot O 